if you're just if you're just dating, if you haven't made a lifelong commitment to someone, then don't combine your finances. Because if you combine your finances early on and something happens to that relationship, now everything is on the table. Welcome to Getting Money Right, everyone. My name is Leo Sabo, and with me is David Thompson. And on today's episode, we're going to answer some of the common questions that we receive, both from the people that we coach, but also from you, the listener. Yeah, this is fun for me. You know, just having produced our first 13 or 14 episodes so far, Leo, I've gotten a ton of questions from friends, from coworkers. Uh, I was actually officiating a wedding and the bride-to-be, she told me that she listens to our podcast and loves it. And so it was really neat. Um, I, I was excited and I was thinking, hey, what what are the people that are asking us questions and, and we're talking with one-on-one and we're meeting with a lot of those same questions apply to our listening audience as a whole, so why not share that? And so as we've gotten more feedback and more questions, it made us think, hey, let's write let's write out some of these questions and answer them for the audience. So that's what we're here to do for you today, and we are excited to share some of these questions and answers. And if you guys do have questions, you could always post those questions. You can go to leosabo.com and hit the contact button and write your question in there, shoot it to me, and we'll include it in a future episode. We'd love to answer your questions. Yeah. That'd be great. And you can always find me on LinkedIn at David Thompson uh, in uh, Texas. So <laughs> I guess I need a, I guess I need a cool website like leosabo.com. <laughs> so, uh, all right, Leo, uh, first question here. You know, one of the things that I hear all the time is um, what's going on in the news, uh, what's happening in politics, what's going on in the global economy and in the national economy. And so, Leo, how how does the overall economy affect my personal finances? Yeah, it's it's a great question because it really does. I mean, we are a global economy. Uh, Whatever the U.S. does, it impacts the rest of the world, and whatever the rest of the world does impacts us. So the economy does impact our personal finances in several ways. When you look at our national debt right now is very high, and the chance of us reneging on our debt is not very high right now, but in the future it could be. So does that affect uh, foreign investors. Absolutely. They look at our ability to repay, and that either encourages them to continue to invest in our country or not, and that's going to affect our economy and eventually our stock market. Um, student loans are also high, which, again, that this is this is probably my biggest concern right now is student loan has risen to over $1.5 trillion. It's actually higher than credit card debt, so it's really a problem it, because it slows down um, the contribution of young people that are coming out of college. They can't just jump into the workforce. And if they do, when they have this massive debt that they need to cover, sometimes they stay at home longer, which means they may not purchase a home. They may not get married. They may not buy the things that would normally be the natural thing that people would do as soon as they start living their own adult life. They start making an income and they start contributing to the economy. And let's face it, our economy is driven in large part by people spending money, by buying the products that are produced and and spending money. Also, inflation. uh, The economy is going to be affected by inflation. Uh, This is going to hurt the buying power, which means that you have to pay more for the goods and services that you're paying today. Consumer confidence affects how much people spend, right? If they feel the economy is strong, they'll spend. Well, they're more likely to say if they feel like the economy is about to weaken. Uh, Another factor of the economy is oil prices. Uh, It affects everything, not just the gas at the pump. High oil prices drive job creation, but also increase cost of manufacturing and travel costs. Low oil prices benefit manufacturing uh, through lower costs, but 
also affects jobs. We saw a reduction in oil and gas jobs over the last few years as oil has dropped. Well, and we experienced that here in Texas. And when the oil and gas price dropped from $100 a barrel to $40 a barrel within a a year, and it's gone back up now, I think it hovers around Mm 65-ish. But the reason that matters to us in Texas is that a huge number of jobs uh, are affected by oil and gas economy. You have the people that pump the oil. You've got the people that are transporting the oil from the pump to the shoreline where it's then transported around the world. So you've got the people who are selling or refining the oil and gas and turning it into usable products. Each of those jobs uh, could be $50,000 a year, $100,000 a year. And when the price of oil goes cuts in half, essentially, as it happened a while back, then the oil companies say, well, we don't need to pull out as much or it doesn't, they're not profiting when they pull oil out of the ground. So they lay people off because they don't need to pull it out of the ground. And then, you know, whole economies are affected. Now, does that mean that the price of oil affects your entire life? For the average person, it's a very small amount. It's probably going to affect you at the pump. And you may go from paying $4 a gallon to $2 a gallon. It might actually be a benefit to you personally. It may save you 100 bucks a month in gas. But if you live in Midlothian, Texas, or if you live in um, the Panhandle, or if you live in, you know, depending on where you live, and, and I'm mentioning Texas, but all over the country, there are unique little markets like this that the economy as a whole um, and trade policy and foreign policy, the way that we interact with other countries can impact your finances. Now, you have the ability to go into the marketplace and find something that people need and serve others with that and be paid for it. And because we live in a, a capitalist economy where you, it's a free market economy for the most part, where you can go and serve other people. So really, you, you make your destiny. That's true. Uh, the economy true. does impact you. The economy does matter, but you make your destiny. And so if you go out and you serve people well and you find places where people need something, uh, we used to be a big manufacturing economy. Well, manufacturing is down to like less than 10%. But we've turned into a service economy where people serve others for a living. Uh, now, manufacturing still happens. Uh, agriculture still happens. I think that's 2% of our economy. But serving people, whether you're an Uber driver or you're a pastor who's preaching and inspirational messages based on the Bible, or whether you're um, somebody who's going out and servicing cars, whether you're a mechanic, whether you, whatever you're doing. I mean, I, you serve other people, you're going to benefit from that financially, and you have the power to go serve someone and change your economic, personal economic uh, future. So what I'm hearing you say, David, is that even though the, the health of the economy does affect us personally, we do have some individual contribution that we can make to change that situation. So just because the economy is going up or down doesn't mean that our financial situation necessarily mimics that, that there are things that we can do to control our own destiny. And I think that's a great, great point. Yeah. And and I love it because you mentioned how bad the student loans have gotten. And because student loans have gone so high, well, that that comes down to basic economics. It was supply and demand. Mm -hmm. So everybody was told in this past generation, which I'm a part of, that you need to have an education. So there was a lot of demand from from the consumer. Hey, we want to we want to buy an education. We want to buy an education. Well, the supply ended up growing because the government said we will supply student loans and we'll make this really easy for people to get into. So they supplied the opportunity for student loans. People walked right into those loans. I'm hoping that in the future that as as students become wise. And I and I'm seeing this happen. I'm seeing younger people be a little bit wiser. They demand that education a little bit less or they find new ways. They find alternates or substitutes Mm -hmm. for their education, whether they find a... um 
Maybe they go to a community college. Maybe they find some online programs. Well, now all of a sudden, the demand for that education is going to stop forcing out the price to increase and increase and increase. And the supply of those student loans hopefully will get cut back a little bit, and that'll lower the demand uh, for the universities, and that'll lower the price. So, so economics is interesting. Supply and demand matters. Uh, we see that here in North Texas. Um, we're building houses like crazy out here. And that's because a lot of people are moving to Texas. It's a healthy economy. It's a fun place to live. Uh, and a lot of people can get a great cost of living here. But because people are moving here, the demand for houses is high. Mm -hmm. And the supply isn't, is not, we do not have an ample supply of homes yet. That's why we're building them. And so the demand is causing the price to increase. So it is, it's affecting our lives. But again, you personally have the choice to say, Maybe I'm not great at pumping oil out of the ground, so I'm going to go build houses. Maybe I'm not great at building houses, so I'm going to go start a podcast and serve a million people on the radio one day. And, you know, whatever it, whatever it is for you, how are you going to serve people? Yeah, that's great. All right, let's move on to the next question. And this question is, should I do a joint or separate checking account with my spouse? Yeah, I just did a, a pre-marriage and money class a couple of weeks ago with my wife, Ashley, and it was a ton of fun. And this is something that comes up every time. You have people that are joining their finances for the first time and they're saying, look, we've always managed it separately on our own. It's worked in the past. Now that we're married, should it be any different? Yeah, what does that matter? Well, if you're married, my answer is definitely yes. You need to have joint accounts. You need to bring that. Uh, if you are dating then definitely no. <laughs> if you're just if you're just dating, if you haven't made a lifelong commitment to someone, then don't combine your finances. I agree with that. Because if you combine your finances early on and something happens to that relationship, now everything is on the table. I mean, they might they might initially say bad things about you, but now they can take money right out of your account. <laughs> and so you want to be prepared. Uh, when you're married, though, uh, it, it's a matter of two people becoming one person. And so now uh, you are one person, and so you should have great communication on your finances. So some of the benefits of combining, one, there's no temptation to hide the money from your spouse. And that's a huge temptation. Transparency is absolutely important in marriage. Yeah. And, and there's always going to be one spouse that has a little bit more of, of a need or desire to save and to put money away. And there's always going to be one spouse that is going to be just a little bit the opposite of that. And they're always spending a little bit more or they're using that money for different, different things that they really enjoy. And that's okay. It's okay to have that balance. But if you have two separate accounts, now you have one person who's hiding money away, the other person who's spending a ton of money, and then there's conflict. Well, how come you won't share this? How come you won't share that? But if it's all in one place, then it forces open communication early. And, and I know it might even feel uncomfortable sometimes, but that, that, un, that discomfort allows you to have a conversation. And if you don't communicate over, oh, well, this feels uncomfortable to me, then you miss important opportunities to catch things while they're small. If it's all in one account and one person sees something they don't like, they can address it right then and there. So it, it helps you not to hide money from each other. It keeps the communication open so you catch financial issues early. And two heads are better than one. You know, having your spouse, your spouse be able to see your balance together helps you to not run into trouble. They will see things that are happening in the account that you might miss. Uh, you can easily pay all the bills from one location. Again, these are all the benefits of having joint accounts. You pay all the bills from one location. It's easier to plan. You can do a lot of automatic expenses together from that one account. And both spouses have access to the accounts in case something happens to one person. Uh, this happened uh, a couple months ago, oh, maybe six months ago now, 
where I was working with somebody who their their spouse tragically passed away unexpectedly and their name wasn't on the account. Mm. And so now the bank won't let them have access to the account because the, the account's in the spouse's name and the, the, the spouse has passed away. So now this person can no longer go to the bank and say, that's my money. The bank has to actually wait until they get a death certificate. They have to see uh, other legal paper paperwork. And, and it was a huge hassle because they didn't have a joint account. And so just be aware, if your name isn't on the account, that could be a major problem, uh, especially if the other person's in another country and unable to get access to communication for a while. I mean, just who knows what it could be, uh, but any number of things. And then, you know, the most important thing about this to me is just unity. Uh, this needs to be our money mm -hmm. that we spend together. It's based on a plan that we created, and together we're going to manage our finances. These, these words I'm using our, we, together. These are things that we need to do. If you're married, you need to recognize that that unity is so key to everything that you're doing, uh, not just in your finances, but your finances are going to be a key indicator where you're putting your money. That is an indicator of what's important to you as a couple. And so you need to have unity in where the money goes, because that really, that really shows where the heart is. I agree. I think, uh, Unity is really the biggest thing. Uh, it's it's bringing the couple together. Finances can be volatile already just because of sometimes the lack of it and just financial challenges. Why allow just the lack of having a good plan that pulls all your resources together to divide you up? Uh, there's been people that I've counseled in the past that have had separate accounts, and usually what would happen is the person who made more money would pay a certain amount of bills that were higher, like the mortgage payment and the taxes and things like that. And, and just dividing it up creates this is this fair? Like I'm paying more than she is, or he's paying less than I am. And, and it just becomes more of a hassle than it needs to be. And I just think that when couples come together, they just accomplish more together. And why would you not want to leverage what you have together to accomplish things much sooner and just be in a, in a better place financially? So makes yeah, sense. I love that. So let's flip the coin on this and let's look at some reasons that you might not combine your accounts. And apparently 25% of people don't combine their accounts according to a TD Bank survey. So what are some reasons? Well, you know, one, it's harder to separate the rest of your lives if you combine your finances. So if you want to live really separate lives, then don't combine your finances. If you don't really want to be in unity, if you don't really want to be with the person that you're married to, go ahead, start separating them now because the rest of your life is going to fall apart. But I don't want that for you. I want unity and joy. Uh, how about it helps you to identify, you know, who earned that money? If you have separate accounts, then one person can say, I earned that. That's my money. I, I should be able to spend it how I want. And now the person who earns more can lord it over the other person saying, because I earned this, I should be able to do what I want with it. No, that's not what we want. <laughs> we don't want one person taking control of the money. We want open communication that flows so that both spouses feel comfortable with the finances and where the money's going. Uh, now, here is the one time that, you know, all jokes aside, it really makes sense to have separate accounts. Uh, if you're dealing with somebody who is an addict, if your spouse has fallen into some clinically diagnosed behavior that they can't control, that's serious. It's time to bring in professional help. So now if you personally diagnose your spouse with, um, you know, just being a crazy spender, that doesn't apply. But if clinically a doctor says your spouse has this problem, and that could be a gambling problem, uh, gambling addicts cannot 
should not have access to the account, whether they want it, uh, whether they say they need it. They should just be portioned out enough cash for meals and gas. Their online access should be shut down. Uh, this goes for people who are addicted to pornography, to alcohol, to substance abuse, anything where they're abusing substances, um, drugs, anything. These are the things that if, if somebody is truly clinically diagnosed with an addiction or maybe even something like a bipolar disorder, this would be a manic depressive bipolar disorder where somebody has huge swings where they go up on, on huge highs and they spend money uh, because they want to feel wonderful and life is great. And then the next day they're in this huge low and now they're spending money to ease the pain or because they don't want to feel life. Anymore. And these, these are real things mm -hmm. and this is real world. And if you've run into this, then the solution is to go to a professional, not to not for you to just try to take control of the money, but for you to go to a professional, get real help. And if it's clinically diagnosed, then it's okay to close down some of those accounts and just have one person managing the finances. So Leo, uh, closing up that chapter, I've heard about good debt. Leo, can you tell me a little bit about what that is? Hmm. That's, that's a question we get a lot, don't we, David? Um, there is such a thing as good debt and bad debt, according to some. However, debt is debt, so uh, we can we can really talk about this probably for about 30 to 40 minutes, I'm sure, but I'm going to try to give you a very quick answer. First of all, debt is considered good when you're able to borrow or leverage money from a lender, such as a bank, to purchase an asset that has potential to produce a profit, either through a regular income or growth in equity, uh, increasing the value, such as when you have a business, you, you invest a certain amount of money to start that business, and that investment, that money plus the bank, being able to lend you some money so that you can grow that business, then that, of course, can can create a business that can make a lot of profit. Same thing with real estate. You can put down 20, 30, 40% on a property, and the bank can lend you the difference, and you can make money. So that's considered good debt. Now, to some, they don't think that any debt is good. And I understand that perspective. I personally don't share it. I think leveraging the bank's money is a good idea sometimes, okay? Uh, but there's a difference between assets and liabilities, and this is where the distinction is made. Assets put money into your pocket, whereas liabilities take money out of your pocket. I think that's the difference that I, I hope our listeners will hear when it comes to debt. You know, having credit card debt that you're buying things that depreciate as soon as you walk out the door, as soon as you walk out of the store, whether it's clothing, shoes, a new purse, whatever it is, those things do not hold their value. So when you're buying and borrowing, really, when you're borrowing to buy those things, then that's considered bad debt because as soon as you buy it, you would never be able to sell it to make the, make up the difference. And if you can't pay it, now you add interest to it, and it just it just gets really bad very quickly. Yeah, and and I've seen people you know walk into this saying, "Oh, well, this is good debt. You know, having a house is good debt, so I should always go out and buy a house instead of rent." And I think that's a little bit naive. Uh, there can be places where debt serves you, but it, as a whole, it's all in relation to your entire financial picture. And so if you have the emergency fund and if you don't have any other consumer debt, then maybe owning a home is a great investment. Maybe it is a good thing for your life. But if you have other debt that you can hardly control and then you go buy a house saying, oh, that's good debt because the asset goes up in value and I'm leveraging the bank's money and I'm going to uh, I'm going to use other people's money, OPM, OPM. That's how we're going to get rich. This comes down to how you manage and whether you truly have a, a mature aspect, a mature look on finances. Uh, if, if you end up borrowing for an asset that appreciates in value and you easily have a way to make the payments, you're never going to be upside down on that. In other words, you're able to put down a good down payment 
then then there can be some healthy levels of risk. But anytime you bring debt into the equation, you're adding risk into the equation and you need to be aware of that. So good debt versus bad debt. I think sometimes people get really excited about, oh, I'm using good debt. And when I look at what they're actually doing, I think, oh, this is a terrible choice. And the person just didn't have the maturity to do the research and the time to dig into the finances and see, does this really make sense for me? I think the bottom line is that this this good debt, bad debt, and whether you should get into debt or not is really an individual choice. But there's wisdom that you can gain by looking at not borrowing for depreciating assets, buying liabilities. So as long as borrowing is to buy assets, it's certainly better than buying liabilities. However, um, using too much leverage, right? Constantly buying as much as you can and leveraging as much of the bank's money is also not wise because we talked about the economy. It's going to affect real estate. It's going to affect so many different things. So if you are if you invest in real estate with little money down and you've got all these properties and all of a sudden the economy tanks and your properties are not worth half what they were worth a few months ago, a year ago, and you can't rent them out because the jobs went away, now that great investment that was making you thousands of dollars per month is now a cash drain. And, you, and you're going to lose everything. So this is where borrowing becomes foolish. So it is important that you buy assets, but it's also important not to accept debt as a way of lifestyle. I just don't think it's a good idea long term. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this ties in perfectly to our very first question, you know, does the economy as a whole affect my personal finances? And this is what happened, exactly what you're explaining. Um, all the way up to 2007, 2008, is the economy was growing, people were buying homes. And as they bought homes, they were using debt to do it. If you go back to the, the 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, the banks were extremely conservative. And they wouldn't lend but a, a fraction of the amount. And you had to have a great income, a solid career for them to lend out anything to you. Well, as they would begin to lend to people, people would buy a little bit bigger house because, oh, I don't need to have all the money today. I can borrow some of it. So they'd buy a bigger house and they would borrow a little bit more. And then that would raise the price of the other homes in the area because people would be willing to spend more because they had access to the debt. Mm -hmm. And so as people got access to more debt, they bought bigger homes, which improved the economy as a whole. More money was going into the economy. But eventually, you see it in the 80s and into the 90s and the early 2000s, people were borrowing so much on those homes. Mm -hmm. And the banks stopped having such strict lending standards so that they were lending to people that maybe had only had a job for a year or were saying they had a job with a high income, but actually their job had very low income. And the banks weren't being very strict. On top of that, people were getting greedy for a bigger home because, well, you know, Leo, homes always go up in value. So I never need to worry. <laughs> I remember when equity line of credit, if you refinance or got an equity line of credit, you can get up to 120% of the value of your home. Ugh. So they were almost guaranteeing or hoping anyway that the property value was going to increase in the next couple of years. And they were willing to let you go beyond, 20% beyond what your house was worth today. They were willing to lend to people. And again, it's just foolish. Yes. I, th I think it's, yes. nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows the future. Yes. So it's a good idea to leverage debt, but you have to make sure you do it wisely. And again, I just want to reiterate the fact that it should not be a lifestyle and a long-term uh, goal. Yeah, yeah. At some point in your life, you want to get completely out of debt, have a bunch of assets that are producing it, cash flow and income for you to live on when you can no longer work or if you want to retire, 
you should not be leveraged with debt at that point in your life. Yeah. And my personal philosophy, just like what you're saying, Leo, is that over time you have a plan to remove all the debt from your life mm-hmm. because when you're in debt, you have an obligation to pay. You have you have basically signed away your future to make payments on this debt. And so that means that you are dictating today what your future is going to look like. And I would rather you have that full future opened up completely where you can go enjoy your life. And so uh, my wife and I, uh, we don't have any debt on our cars, uh, any debt, um, any any credit card debt, any, any, any loans outstanding except for our home because we were able to put down a good size down payment and not have to worry about the, 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 the idea that the market might go down again. So, so I was just talking, you go through the, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, people are buying, they're buying. And then all of a sudden 2008 happens because people stopped being able to afford their mortgages. A few people defaulted, a few more people defaulted. Uh, there were these mortgage-backed securities, these investments that were based on mortgages that were poorly written. And all of a sudden, because of housing, the entire economy fell apart for several years. And a lot of that was based on greed and speculation. But if you had put down a good downsize pay, a good a good down payment on your home, uh, then you would have been able to sell that home for at least what it was worth and get out from the debt. So I would say don't take on debt unless you have a sure way to pay it. You've got a job that you can pay those payments every month. And if you lose the job or you lose the income, then you're able to get out from under the debt. So Leo, what's another good question for us to look at? So here's a question. Um, what's the best way to rob a bank without getting caught? Uh, Leo, you will get caught. <laughs> the more banks you rob, the more jail time you'll serve. Okay. So don't do it. <laughs> okay. So what if what if you're lazy and really likes nice things? Then what? Oh, that's easy. You just go into politics. Oh, that's, okay. <laughs> that's a good one. All right. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, please go back and rate it, share it, review it, uh, help other people find the podcast, subscribe, and then share it on your favorite social media outlet. Uh, We thank you for joining us for this episode. And what we're going to be doing next week is answering a few more of these questions. We'll have a few more of these shows sprinkled in. We just go through some of those common questions. Please go to leosabo.com and ask some more questions, put them in the comments, or just submit a comment onto the website. And with that, we look forward to having you join us next time so that together we we can can keep keep getting getting money right. But there's a difference between assets and liabilities, and this is where the distinction is made. Assets put money into your pocket, whereas liabilities take money out of your pocket. I think that's the difference that I hope our listeners will hear when it comes to debt.